and welcome to episode two of the Massage Matters podcast, part of the Physio Matters Network. I'm Anna Maria Mazzieri, a soft tissue therapist, and together with fellow passionate soft tissue therapists, Matt Scarsbrook and Becky Demont Horton, we created the Massage Collective to provide the link between traditional massage therapies and modern evidence-based practice in healthcare. The Massage Collective provides resources to massage tra- therapists and indeed all MSK therapists who want to level up their understanding of what's going on under their hands and how massage fits within a contemporary biopsychosocial approach. The Massage Matters podcast is an opportunity to join us as we dive into all facets of massage and manual therapy, from exploring modern concepts to delivering best practice advice that you can apply immediately in the clinic. We'll be releasing new episodes fortnightly across all the usual platforms, so make sure you subscribe to stay up to date with all the latest content. Before we get started on today's topic, we got some really exciting news. After the success of the Therapy Life Conference in June, the PhysioMatters team are breaking new ground again, this time with Therapy Life Sport and a specific focus on the triad of swim, bike, run. The Massage Collective will be hosting a live Massage Matters podcast, exploring massage as a tool for recovery post-training and post-event, which we are incredibly excited about and maybe just a little bit nervous. So get the 7th of November in your diaries now. There are only 5,000 spaces for the whole event. So click the link on our Facebook page to go and sign up. Right, it's probably time we got stuck into today's episode, Mental Massage. Are we alluding to a florage of our gray matter or something a little bit more cerebral? So Becky, what are we talking about today? So it's tempting to view massage as a purely physical intervention, but have we in fact overlooked its overlap into the psychosocial realm? As more and more evidence is supporting the biopsychosocial model with regard to the treatment of pain and injury, we know that depending on the client and the nature of their pain, there will be varying degrees of involvement from biological, psychological and social factors. So do we need to start considering how massage can play a part in all of these factors, not just the biological? So know that this is something that Matt has researched extensively. So Matt, would you like to give us a bit of a rundown of some of the research looking at massage in the psychosocial field? Absolutely. Um, so I should probably start by saying um, my current biases do do lean more into the psychology around pain and performance. Um, specifically anxiety and depression. Uh, That's largely because as you dig into the research regarding massage, this is where time and again we see the most consistent clinically significant impacts. So anyone who saw my presentation at Therapy Live in June uh, will have heard how I suggested that perhaps within our BPS uh, model, massage should be considered more influential in the psycho bubble than the bio bubble. Um, So uh, really, I just wanted to give a very quick overview um, of the most significant papers, really, that explore the efficacy of massage um, from a psychological uh, perspective. 
So Tiffany Field, um, who's a researcher in the in the US uh, from Miami, um, she's one of the first, if not the first, researchers to lead sort of university-based studies into the effects of massage um, and wrote probably the most influential paper of the 90s uh, in, in 1998, uh, in which in, in, in very much a review type form, uh, she covered the existing research into many of the claimed effects of massage at the time and touched briefly on some of the possible mechanisms. It was really kind of the first paper that tried to draw together all of the research that had been done to date um, and explore uh, both what it told us and perhaps what it meant. Um, now, from that paper, several ideas and studies haven't aged particularly well. Um, for example, linking tight hamstrings to lower back pain and suggestions that massage lowers cortisol levels. However, it was the first time really that the effects of anxiety, the, the effects of massage and on anxiety and depression featured regularly, um, both as outcome measures, um, but also consistently demonstrating promising results. However, from a, a slightly objective perspective, um, a significant issue with this paper as a whole is that one third of the referenced papers for this review were actually written by Tiffany Field herself as part of her part of her research. Now, uh, unfortunately, many of those studies didn't have control groups, and so the the effects of the outcome measures measured <laughs> could be questionable. But but it's still a super important paper because part of the reason that a third of the papers referenced were by Tiffany herself was because no one else was doing the research to any kind of significant level. So it's a bit of a catch-22, I think, for, for Tiffany Field. But but either way, it, it really did sort of start the ball rolling a little bit on, hey, let's look into massage a little bit. I think we need to start, uh, we need to appreciate uh, those researchers that they're asking the questions. Somebody has to start asking the question. So although there are, you know, important limitations to, to those papers, there are also, you know, we need to appreciate that at least she started. And, Absolutely. And, and it's a quest for, uh, it's a quest for knowledge. Yeah. Well, so, so, so basically that, and, 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 you know, start it, she absolutely did, because then in, in 2004, um, Moira Tal did a, a, a really good meta-analysis. And when I say really good, I mean from, a, from a, an objective statistical perspective. It was a fantastic meta-analysis. Um, and is actually currently the, the massage-related paper <clears throat> with the highest number of citations, uh, according to Google Scholar, um, and was interestingly published in Psychological Bulletin. So, you know, again... I referenced in Therapy Live the the influence of um, psychology journals when it comes to the publishing of massage research. Anyway, Moy's approach was to differentiate clearly between single dose and multi dose effects of massage. So, looking at what studies uh, were looking at the effects after a single massage or after a set of massage treatments, perhaps over you know a couple of times a week over several weeks, that kind of approach. And, and his group also ensured that all the studies, including the meta-analysis, met three key criteria. There had to be a comparison to a non-massage control group. The assignment of study, uh, the assignment of uh, participants to those groups had to be randomized, and sufficient data had to have been gathered to determine 
the all-important between-group effect sizes, which is one of the criticisms of some of the earlier work was that it was really looking at the effects within group. And so it was hard to tell whether massage was the difference. So comparing between groups of people who did receive massage and didn't is, is super important. And, and in short, the meta-analysis showed that very significant effects, both statistically and clinically, were reported for state, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the one-off single dose, uh, and trait, anxiety and depression, and actually comparable to psychotherapy. Um, but no significant effects in other areas, such as the reduction of cortisol. So the most recent paper on this that I could find, uh, which was actually accepted earlier this month, and so probably isn't quite in publication yet, um, continues to support this notion, actually, that massage outperforms regular care in the reduction of self-reported anxiety, but not depression, interestingly, when looking at cohorts of pregnant women. Um, however, given the specificity of this meta, this particular meta-analysis, which is perinatal, and the paucity of quality massage research in general, uh, the authors concluded that all the papers involved were at a high risk of bias. <clears throat> however, what is clear is a continued recognition of massage's real and substantial effects on anxiety and depression when, con when compared to control or usual care. Um, the bit that isn't clear is the mechanism behind these effects. It is really important to understand this uh, depression and anxiety link to massage, as well as understanding depression and anxiety link to people in pain, but also um, elite athletes. In fact, in uh, a nice and neat meta-analysis in 2019, they showed evidence of symptoms of distress, sleep disturbance, anxiety and depression of um, on 34% of nearly 3,000 elite athletes. So 34% displaying mental health symptoms. And if we then make the link to massage seems to be effective for depression and anxiety, then you're already creating, you already have there an intervention that might remove part of what they're coming to you for. But, you know, we have to be very careful that they're coming to us for musculoskeletal injuries. And I think there it's, it's a good point to make that distinction between what we're saying here is that massage is not a, uh, a treatment for psychological conditions such as depression and anxiety. And we're not, we're not framing it as such. But given that we know there's this link between psychosocial factors and pain, is, is this beneficial effect on, on our psychology does it go some way to explain the beneficial effects we see from massage on pain? And we know from, from more and more research that actually there aren't clear or there isn't good evidence on the physical mechanisms that we've used to explain massage before. And we touched on that last in the last podcast and, you know, it's all about the nerves. 
so we know there isn't that good physical evidence. So is it in fact that we're removing one of these or we're, we're benefiting one of these other factors? And I think it's also worth saying we're not just talking about people with a, a, a formal diagnosis of anxiety and depression. What we're saying is that everybody in their lives has levels of stress um, and and pain can be a big factor in that, whether it's cause or effect. If somebody's in pain, their likelihood is their sleep's affected, their stress levels are heightened. If we can have a beneficial effect in reducing that, is that where we're getting our, our benefit from in reducing their pain? And I, th- I think, uh, I, and I think that's, that's such an important point as well. What I found, found particularly interesting when I was doing my, my sort of uh, research into into this this link <clears throat> um, is, is that the meta-analyses that, that exist have tried to look into some of the explanations perhaps as to what's going on um, as to why we might see um, and what they've done really nicely is they've listed essentially the different um, me- the different potential mechanisms of effective massage so they've gone uh, back as far as Melzack's um, uh, pain gate theory and then they've explored a little bit around um, are we dialing sort of down the sympathetic nervous reaction and up the parasympathetic nervous rea- uh, nervous system um is it that we're having a direct sort of biological impact on certain chemicals within the body and and the obvious one to to go to is is you know the, the stress hormone that i think everyone knows whether they realize what it does or not which is cortisol and this idea that you know cortisol being strongly linked to to the stress response and what's really interesting, actually, is there is no clear evidence that massage reduces cortisol. So we get really clear, um, consistent results that it's affecting anxiety and depression. But actually, the mechanism through which it's doing that is really, really unclear. And, and there actually is a proper back and forth in the literature between, um, yes, it affects cortisol levels but we're not going to really tell you by how much and whether it's actually clinically significant. And then the other side, which is, yes, we've seen an effect, but it's basically zero when you, when you look at it statistically. And so given the, the significant changes that people report in anxiety and depressive symptoms and the totally insignificant changes in cortisol it doesn't make sense that the small changes in cortisol are what are leading to the large changes in 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 symptoms um, of anxiety and depression is it contextual then that's a wonder so 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 that does get discussed yeah yeah is is that contextual is it because um is it because the 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 room is it because uh, the way the the therapeutic alliance with the therapist, the safe zone, somebody there to listen to you, somebody there to validate uh, your pains. Mm. That it's uh, that it has a lot. So are we removing the threat emotionally more than actually creating something physiological? And it comes back a bit to what we've discussed before that that we just as humans, it sort of instinctively know that touch is therapeutic. Um, and it's, it's, you know, we'd like to have an explanation for why that is and what's it doing in our brain that, that makes us feel better. But currently we don't. But we know that, you know, we as humans sort of 
crave that and, and not everybody I know not everybody's that keen on hugs but most of us if we feel upset if we feel um, threatened if we feel in pain we enjoy the comfort of another human being's touch and that and that helps to calm us down and, and I think that's really interesting and we've looked before at the at the sort of history of massage and the fact that all cultures have some kind of um formal touch if you like some form of massage and and it's so clear that there's something going on I'd love to know what it is that's going on but Mm. there's something going on that that reassures us and somehow that that down regulates that pain that we're feeling and and that and that is touched on as I say I mean I, I think I've become a bit of a fanboy of of um of the Moya uh, meta-analysis the 2004 one because in there they they do try and dive into that a little bit and, and and because of this so Moya is a psychologist by by background so he's not a massage therapist by background and he but, but it means that he has a uh, a real understanding of um, how research can be conducted in such a way that is meaningful and useful, but perhaps outside of the traditional medical model of here is an absolute placebo. Um, we can run a double blind trial, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all of that is recognized within, within psychology. Um, and, and he tries to explore some of this and, and, and because he, he has drawn parallels to the efficacy of psychotherapy on the reduction of symptoms of anxiety and depression um, the the way that they actually uh, refer to this is that uh, so so for example um, for trait anxiety as part of this meta-analysis um, the level of trait anxiety uh, was lower than 77% of the control group participants. So what they're saying is that not that it's been reduced by X amount, but that versus standard care, a greater proportion of the group has, uh, has benefited. Um, and when you look at the, the results for, for anxiety and depression that come out of this particular meta-analysis, uh, I can't remember exactly, but it's, it's sitting like 73 to 74% uh, better off uh, up to this 77% better off. Um, but when you compare that to psychotherapy um, and, and, the, and the sort of the, 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 the well understood psychotherapy benefits, you're looking at about 79% are better off having taken. So, so, so it's not, it's not too big a leap to say that's comparable, particularly when you look at the length of the sessions involved. So on average within the meta-analysis, the massage, I think it varied from something like 20 to 40 minutes. So, you know, on average, it's a 30 minute session where psychotherapy generally is your sort of 50 minute hour, you know, it's, it's an hour session. And so there is a, I think, quite a reasonable question to ask, which is if, it, if context is important, is the amount of time you spend in that context also important? And therefore, if there were studies that allowed a meta-analysis of a 50 minute hour or a 60 minute massage session, could you get even closer to the outcomes of psychotherapy? And that's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the things that we feel we observe as, as soft tissue therapists or a lot of the feedback we get from our clients is that it's not very often you're given an hour of somebody else's time. You know, if you go to see a GP, you've got a 10, 15 minute consultation, quite often physios working in a um, 
healthcare setting have limitations on their time for obvious reasons. Um, so when you're when you're going into a massage setting, it's it's one of those things that you hear a lot. Is I just ha- love having this hour to to not think about anybody else, not worry about the kids, not worry about my job, not worry about my training, whatever it is. Um, that they they get given that space and that time that that isn't present in in our day day to day lives, and I, and I think that 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 probably leads beautifully onto onto sort of the the, the second point that we kind of want people to take away from today, which is that that there is a huge value of relaxation when it comes to pain management. Now, what we're not saying, um, because let's be honest, it's been thrown out a long time ago, is we're not saying bed rest. <laughs> you know, if you're in pain, bed rest is not the way. It's distinctly different from from uh, relaxation and, and fundamentally feeling good. And I personally think feeling good is underrated as part of someone's journey through their pain experience. Um, I, I, I don't know what 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 you think on that, Becky. <clears throat> Yeah, I, th- I think it's a really good point, Matt. That that we relaxation is good. That something um, giving someone an hour of something that feels good and makes them feel a bit better is underrated. I think what's really important is what what do we do next with them? So when they've come for that massage, and you know, take the the, the case of a uh, somebody with persistent lower back pain. Um, and you've managed to give them that that relaxation and that they get off the couch feeling a bit better, tell them to go for a walk. You know, tell them to take advantage of that feeling a bit better and that, you know, so we're not saying it's a it's a relax, now go home and sleep for, you know, three hours. Maybe they need to do that. That's, you know, that's fine. But but what do you do next for that client? What How are you maximizing that window that you've given them where they feel better? And don't, don't give them explanations that aren't true about why they feel better. You know, it's kind of okay for them to get off the couch and go, that felt nice and it made me feel better. And you say, yeah, that's because massage feels nice. <laughs> I agree that no matter what, uh, feel free, feel feel okay, and feel free to to feel good and to relax is really important. Again, there's been a, a systematic review done in 2011 by Miles, and they found that self-efficacy and depression are the strongest prognostic factor, irrespective of the intervention. And they suggest that those two should be targeted at early stages so that the person, the client, the the patient, to prevent them to transition into chronic disability and increase physical disability. So we know that we need to affect that depression and that anxiety as one of our first aims why not use if the particular client in front of us responds better we be in touch not everybody will but if the client responds better with that comfortable touch as long as we make them aware that our aim is not just giving the massage for massage sake Massage is only an intervention to achieve an aim, and the aim should always be self-efficacy, active lifestyle. So as long as the client knows that and is framed within the right uh, 
with the right narrative that we are not changing any body structure, then I think it's a valuable intervention that can be used with a with a careful clinical um, reasoning behind it. Absolutely. And it's one of the criticisms of one of the most used criticisms of massage, isn't it? That it, it, it doesn't encourage self-efficacy, that it's a passive treatment that in, encourages clients to become dependent. And I think that's where we have a massive role to play as modern massage therapists. That actually we can, I really do believe you can use that time and that touch to encourage self-efficacy because you can give that use that time to build confidence in the person's body that that is so often lost in people that are suffering both with persistent pain and anxiety and depression you know they they often lose confidence in their in their body and their ability so let's use touch to build that and build self-efficacy and you don't need to be a rehab expert you know if you're if you're not in the sort of soft tissue therapy side of massage and you're not a rehab expert you don't need to be but you can encourage somebody like you say Anna to to go for that walk to go for a swim to go and do something active to pick up their children you know those things that they've been nervous of doing can I pick up on when you said uh, about uh, it's the way we frame it is the is the therapist I totally about being the passive treatment I a passive treatment is made passive by the therapist. The, um, dependency, or even better, let me just, dependency is built by the therapist. You can still have a therapist that tries to work with movement-based interventions and still make the movement-based intervention it still makes sorry the client dependent to them to the therapist so i totally believe that passive for me first of all is not necessarily a passive treatment is not necessarily a negative term as long as the passive treatment it's uh, as the function to achieve uh, self-efficacy and the other thing also is that for some clients that comes to our doors there are already those clients that might not have responded as well as with previous interventions so in our very important subjective we need to profile the client we need to look what their expectation what the experiences are and that's where critical and clinical thinking is to come into place. If I know that in front of me, I have a client, one of those subgroup of people that there might be more of a danger that they're going to become dependent on a modality, then I will be very, very careful what type of modality, if I use any of those modalities at all, and the way I frame it. So, so I, ultimately, we need to be good clinicians. 100% agree and I think you know touching on that that modalities you use I think you can you can be providing what is regarded as a passive treatment um, but to me there is a big difference between having someone come down and lie prone for an hour and, and literally lie there while they're being treated or having someone 
um, moving around on the couch, uh, different positions, having essentially demonstrating to them that, uh, let's say, for example, they've got they're suffering from shoulder pain, you know, they've got painful arc and well, why not have them sideline and moving their their arm um, with a shortened lever um, with with the effect of gravity being quite different on their on their on their joint whilst providing some soft tissue release or some massage around the area that's no longer passive yet it's still a massage it still feels good but you are encouraging self-efficacy because you can help demonstrate that after having cleared for red flags and everything that essentially that they have movement in their shoulder that they can provide themselves um you're just demonstrating in this particular hypothetical example perhaps that 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 loading is the issue and that perhaps we just need to but to modify that loading but but to to be able to demonstrate to someone that you can move and you should move yes we're in a nice safe environment yes i've got you in a position you might not have considered lying down in bed and just waving your arm around lying on your side before but now i've shown you it you can go home and do this more regularly yeah we are exposing them to if not pain-free movement <clears throat> we're exposing them to movement that they can do that this time they can do and once you expose them to that they can then build that builds self-efficacy yeah absolutely so i think that's a really good point to come on to our our little regular feature of theory to practice so the idea of this is how can you take what you've heard in today's podcast and apply it in your in your clinic tomorrow um so what i want to talk about today when we think about theory to practice and and how you might sort of tweak your practice a little bit is if we're considering the benefits of massage as a as a positive impact on our mental well-being as well as as the physical aspect then perhaps we need to focus a little bit less on the specificity of certain modalities um, for certain symptoms so I know personally certainly when I was training and when I was a new therapist you're very kind of um panicky if you're like me um, that you're using exactly the right technique and have you got your hand at exactly the right angle and are you exactly on the serratus anterior or 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 not and have you got into the muscle that you're meant to be working on and is this the right thing to be doing for somebody with lower back pain I'm not sure actually we can when we start to see massage in the bigger picture of treating the person's psychological well-being and actually using the fact that it's something that feels nice and it's it's a relaxing treatment for them we can be a little bit less hung up on the specificity of those certain modalities but actually think about what we're doing for the client and are we being specific for our client that's in front of us so there's no point I personally I hate anybody doing trigger point therapy on me I hate it it hurts I don't like it and it really annoys me there'd be no point using it on me because that's going to take away all those benefits that we've worked on in the rest of the treatment. However, some people I know really enjoy it and it does work for them and it it, it does provide them some relief. So it's getting to know that client and what works for them rather than what works for a tight hamstring. And and that comes back to, um, like Anna's saying, about the therapeutic alliance and building that alliance with your clients, taking the time to get to know them and, and having that really open communication with them. You know, I always say to my clients, look, 
I'm going to try a variety of techniques here. Please say if anything feels uncomfortable or if anything is not pleasant for you, because that's not going to be beneficial in this setting. Please let me know if there's anything you particularly like or, you know, feels particularly comfortable or I see some more movement from something that I've I've done particularly. So it's thinking about those techniques that you use. Are they right for that client and are they getting the benefit you need rather than, you know, buying a million books telling you how to do trigger point therapy or soft tissue release because it's different for every client because people's feelings about those movements are going to be going to be different so that would be my take home from a a kind of theory to practice thing is is be less hung up on those techniques use your instincts a little bit more and use your communication with your clients a bit more to make sure that what you're doing is right for them rather than just thinking of them as a set of muscles and a set of techniques that you use to treat them So that brings us on to our kind of last point that we wanted to make on today's podcast. And we touched on it slightly earlier that we are, we're not saying that massage is a a treatment for depression or anxiety. And we're not just saying that it has a relevance to people with a clinical diagnosis of, of a psychological illness. Um, But stress, and as we say, we all have stress in our lives, um, and that can really affect our response to potential threat. And as we know, pain is an output from the brain. It's a response to a potential threat. So if we can use massage to, if you like, manipulate our response to a potential threat and reduce stress, perhaps we're tapping into something there that that lowers our response to that pain. Yeah, really interesting, Becky. In fact, uh, well, it was very interesting what Matt said about, um, I think it was uh, Tiffany Fields or the, Mo- the meta-analysis, the Moyers meta-analysis, where there is a positive outcome, 77% comparison to um, uh, psychological... To only to the con- yeah, so to the to the control group, yeah. To the control group, sorry, to the control group, but the cortisol changes were minimal or non uh, non applicable. So what is it that's creating the change? Yeah. Is that the context? Is it the fact that we are removing that perception of threat? so that the brain does not have to answer to it. Could it be that we are creating that, you know, sometimes we, some therapists call it the sanctuary, you know, the the area where they can feel safe and therefore that stimulates a parasympathetic response. And I think that is is, uh, tremendously important in any setting from the athlete setting to the fibromyalgia clients because as we we said before we know the athletes as well there is a comorbidity with uh, um, pain and anxiety and depression no absolutely i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna quote here from um from uh, Moyer again actually uh, I'm, I'm going to read it word for word because I think it's, it's great because it, it's, it's alluding to or is asking the question uh, around what um, Anna Maria you love to call the therapeutic alliance this 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 um, 
this relationship between the therapist and the uh, and the client and how important that might be in the context of of the client's pain and um, and, and Moyes refers to uh, to it as interpersonal attention um, and so uh, here he, he, he writes it's notable that a series of massage therapy treatments produces reductions of anxiety and depression that are similar in magnitude to those typically observed in psychotherapy research in addition Massage therapy parallels psychotherapy in structure. Both therapies rely on repeated, private, interpersonal contact between practitioner and recipient, and similar session lengths and patterns are employed. Massage therapy intended to reduce anxiety and depression may be more similar to psychotherapy than has commonly been considered, which could have important ramifications for both education and research. And I, and I think he's, he's onto something there. What he's not saying is what the underlying mechanism is, absolutely. Um, and and like, uh, like we've said, this, this question over cortisol, I think it's still going on um, because, yes, there can be changes, but there's been no studies that have actually said, well, is it the massage has changed it? Or is it purely that you're testing it an hour later at the end of massage? Um, you know, time is a factor here. I think, I think also as well, if, if anyone um, uh, has a particular interest in, <clears throat> in understanding stress um, and, and, and the stress response more, more generally and how, uh, how it, it can affect us and how therefore, you know, we can draw some parallels to why massage may maybe helping as part of a stress response and reducing that threat level. Um, Robert Sapol uh, Sapolsky, um, who is a um, uh, professor in, in the US, <clears throat> excuse me, and is regarded as a, uh, well, the world leader, I suppose, when it comes to stress. Um, he's got uh, a book by, uh, called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and it is well worth a read. But you can you can have a look on YouTube, and he's got some fantastic lectures on there as well, covering this, this same thing. Excuse me. <clears throat> but he's essentially saying that, that in, in the animal world, you are your stress response is only kicking in as a, as a simply for survival. You, you know, it's a case of, I think he puts it as, um, by the time it's over, either it's over or you're over. Um, whereas for us, our stress response kicks in when we think about our 30 year mortgage, um, and, and tends to not go away. And so, and, and we know there are links between that and pain, um, we know that it can increase the perception of threat, which can lead to to persistence in pain or an increase in pain. So why not give yourself time to reduce that stress? I think as well, it, what really stands out for me is if we're saying we're, we're using uh, a massage as a treatment to lower the threat associated with pain, um, that gives us a responsibility as well. You know, like Anna said, um, is it contextual and, and all those other f factors matter in reducing that threat level? But we also need to bear in mind that we are someone that could increase that threat level. So when you do that, oh, gosh, you feel tight today. Awful statement. Um, you know, actually, are you increasing that person's threat? So I think what's really nice from this research is that we can we can understand our role as a massage therapist in a wider context. And if that context is reducing threat, we need to make sure we reduce threat in everything. So yes, our touch is positive, but also our language is positive. Our environment is positive. The experience of booking an appointment with us is positive. You know, all those factors around our treatment 
are part of the beneficial effect that we see. So we need to be conscious of everything. Becky, I couldn't agree more with you on the language. And that it's one of, for me, it's an intervention per se. And uh, this is something that as massage therapists is people that they're listening to us and they are wondering, what can I change? What course should I be doing? The first thing I will look at the language you use in your own clinic, the language you use to explain what you're doing, the language you you use when you respond to your client. So that is something that we can all and should all start slowly, slowly to change because anything we say, anything we show, anything we do will create expectations in the brain and will be actually interpreted in the in the brain in a very different way sometimes that we meant we meant it to be so we need to be very very careful the client we have in front of us and how they respond and i i made myself a, a rule fairly on early on as as a therapist that one of the things that i wanted to be very clear on with myself is that whoever my client is and whatever they've come to me with and why whatever their reason for treatment is they walk out of my room feeling better about their body than they walked in feeling about it you know whether they had lost confidence in it because of pain or whether they felt a bit chubby because they had a pizza last night whatever it is whatever their hang up about their body is they walk out feeling better about it than they walk in and so often Anna that comes down like you say to the language you use you know more so I believe more so than your than your touch there there was some there was some evidence that it was in marketing and advertising it's quite old I don't particularly remember the reference but if you put I think it was three or four uh, positive adjectives in front of several other negative adjectives the person will still come out and would have listened, would have heard the whole statement in a very positive way. So as long as we are realistic and we are not overly uh, enthusiastic in terms of uh, the prognosis, but we can be very positive and very um, empathetic. Empathetic, can we see that in this country? Yeah. Awesome. Well, so I'm hoping people have got something fairly decent out today. I've actually really enjoyed enjoyed that. Yeah, it's really good. So um, basically what we want to send you away with today is the, the sort of three points we've touched on is that the evidence is suggesting that, um, one of the one of the things that massage can do is symptom management of anxiety and depression we're not saying that it is a treatment for anxiety and depression but we are then making links between the fact that anxiety and depression are common factors in persistent pain and if we can provide some reduction in that uh in, in those symptoms then perhaps that is one of the mechanisms that we are using uh when helping people in persistent pain and uh, to follow that up, we need to, to, to embrace, I suppose, the value of relaxation for pain management. Again, we're not talking bed rest, but we need to, to feel good. And feeling good is underrated. 
uh, and particularly where there is a link between someone's mental health uh, and and their uh, their experience of, of, of pain um, and that this is not just applicable to clinical mental health diagnoses um, we're talking here about the fact that stress can affect your response to potential threat and that response to potential threat is fundamentally where pain comes from and so um, if massage can reduce stress and we can maybe therefore modify threat we then might end up with uh, an explanation uh, going some way towards uh, where massage sits so Anna Maria what's coming up next so our next po- next podcast will be Intro to Pain Science for Massage Therapists. It's going to be in two weeks' time, which is the third week of October. And but in the meantime, you can find us on social media, on Facebook uh, at the Massage Collective, or if you have any questions, you can email us at massage at physio-matters.com. Do not forget Therapy Life Sport on November the 7th, which is uh, an event uh, that has uh, a specific focus on the triad of swim, bike and run, and where the Massage Collective will be hosting a live podcast exploring massage as a tool for recovery post-training and post-event. So don't miss that one, and see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye now. Ciao. Bye.